Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Imagine spending 28 years on death row. No. Solitary confinement. Hell no. Nearly every minute of life spent in a five foot by seven foot cell. Uh-uh. Listening to 54 executions take place down the corridor while you wait. Oh, damn. Counting down the days until your own execution. Mm-mm. Now imagine that you're innocent. I am. After almost three decades of incarceration, you're released. But there are no apologies. No way to give you back what you've lost. Relationships, family members, a chance to grow and live in society. It's gone, and nothing can change that. Would you leave death row without bitterness for the system, for the people who put you there despite your innocence? I don't think so. As you reunite with the people from your life who are still alive, the ones who haven't passed away while you were awaiting your own demise on death row, what would be written on your heart? What words would escape your mouth as you rediscovered freedom at an age typically thought of for spoiling grandchildren and preparing for retirement? One man didn't have to imagine any of this. It was his life. It is his story. Today, we're talking about the wrongful conviction of Anthony Ray Hinton. Late on February 23, 1985, John Davidson, who was the assistant manager of Miss Winter's Chicken and Biscuits in Birmingham, Alabama, was fatally shot in an after-hours robbery. Roughly $2,000 was missing from the safe. Davidson was still alive when an exterminator came to the restaurant and found him in the cooler. Davidson had suffered two gunshot wounds to his head. He was taken to a hospital and underwent surgery, but ultimately he wouldn't survive the attack, and he died on February 25th. Two bullets were removed and turned over to police. There were no eyewitnesses to the robbery murder, and no traceable fingerprints were found at the scene. But a toolmark examiner with the Department of Forensic Sciences, sounds fancy, right? Named David Higgins examined two projectiles recovered from the crime and concluded it was impossible for him to say that these bullets were fired from the same weapon. Accordingly, the police did not know if more than one shooter or more than one gun was involved in the case. Now, during the early morning hours of July 2nd, 1985, Captain D's restaurant in Woodlawn was robbed, and the assistant manager, Thomas Wayne Vassen, was fatally shot twice in the head. There were no eyewitnesses again to the murder and no fingerprints lifted from the scene have ever been matched to a suspect. Later that day, a different DFS examiner, Lawden Yates, was asked to examine the two projectiles recovered from the crime, and he concluded that they had been fired from a single weapon. Yates was Higgins' supervisor, so Yates, this guy at the second crime scene, is a supervisor from the DFS guy in the first scene. And after Yates determined that the bullets from the second crime scene matched, that the two bullets were fired from the same gun, he then re-examined the Davidson shooting bullets with Higgins and compared them to the Vassen bullets, so from the two crime scenes. On July 3rd, 1985, Higgins changed his opinion and together with Yates told investigators that all four bullets had been fired from the same weapon. Now, there were a lot of similarities between the two crimes. Police believe that both victims were confronted in the parking lots of the restaurants after closing up for the night, and that both were ordered back inside and forced to open the safes. Because both men were found shot in the restaurant coolers, the media dubbed the perpetrator the Cooler Killer. Oh, a catchy name. Right. Yeah, and that's it's unfortunate that the media often, uh, you know, makes these scumbags out to be something, and no pun intended here, cooler than what they really are. 
On July 25th, 1985, 55-year-old Sidney Smotherman, that's his real name, uh, the night manager of Quincy's Family Steakhouse in nearby Bessemer, Alabama, closed the restaurant and stopped at a grocery store on his way home. It was a little after midnight when he stopped at the store. Another restaurant employee who just happened to stop at the same store would later say that he saw a black man who appeared to be watching Smotherman and shielding his face. After Smotherman left the grocery store and was driving home, another car bumped his car from behind. When he got out, the driver of the other car pulled a gun on him. Smotherman was forced to drive the gunman's car to Quincy's, the place he worked, and go inside and empty the safe. The gunman ordered him to go into the restaurant's freezer. Smotherman, who was aware of news accounts of the two other restaurant robbery murders, was quick thinking and said that he told the gunman he wanted to be in the cooler instead of the freezer because it wasn't as cold. Smotherman knew that he could lock the cooler from the inside. The gunman agreed, and when Smotherman walked into the cooler and turned to pull the door shut, the gunman fired two shots. One struck Smotherman in the head, but did not pierce his skull. Instead, the bullet traveled under his skin and exited down his neck and ended up in his shirt pocket. That is downright crazy. Right? The other bullet took off the end of one of his fingers. He had raised his hand to try to protect himself, and the bullet ripped his finger off, ricocheted into the cooler. As he fell down, Smotherman kicked the door shut and it automatically locked, protecting him from his assailant. Smotherman waited about 10 minutes and then went out of the cooler to call the police. They compared the two bullets from this shooting and said their examination showed that all six bullets in the three crimes were fired by the same gun. An artist for the Bessemer newspaper worked with police and Smotherman to create a composite sketch. Reginald White, an employee of Quincy's, told police he recognized the sketch as Anthony Hinton, a man he knew from a second job he had in nearby Hoover, Alabama. White said that about two weeks prior to this incident, Hinton approached him and asked him if he was still working at Quincy's. When he said yes, Hinton asked if Mr. Don was the manager. White said he told Hinton that there was a new manager who had just bought a new Fiero automobile. White said Hinton also asked what time the restaurant closed. Do you ever have a Fiero, Bob? I always wanted one, but I never had one. Hmm. What got lost in the push to find a killer in these cases was that a few years before this, Anthony had made an enemy out of Reggie when he dated a girl who had turned Reggie down. The police prepared a photographic lineup for Smotherman, who selected Hinton as the man who robbed and shot him. But Mr. Smotherman had misidentified other people as perpetrators of the crime against him, including, for example... Leon Perry, a former New York Giants running back who was playing for the Birmingham Stallions and had provided aid to Mr. Smotherman shortly after the crime. Oh, damn. Eyewitness testimony. As I knew I was going to get you fired up with that one. Now, there's evidence that police tried to pressure several people into identifying Anthony as the man they saw near Quincy's on the night of the offense. After Smotherman ID'd Anthony on July 31st, 1985, police went to Hinton's home where he lived with his mother, Bueller. They found an old, very worn 38 caliber revolver under her mattress, but failed to find any evidence linking him to the crimes. He was arrested that day and charged with the robbery of Smotherman. Based on this old, worn-out 38 under Mama's mattress. That's right. The gun was turned over to the Alabama... I hope you enjoyed my speaking in cursive. The gun was turned over to the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences. Higgins and Yates test-fired the gun and said that all six bullets from the three crimes were fired by Bueller's gun. The police then charged Hinton with capital murder in the deaths of Davison and Vassin. However, their undisclosed records did not support this finding. 
That's right. Because if you remember the initial investigation into the first crime scene, Higgins said he couldn't even say that the two bullets that were found at that scene and recovered from that scene were uh, from the same gun. But yet now we have them saying that all six bullets fired in all three crime scenes match and were fired from the exact same gun. And I think what you have there is what they call that their uh, exculpatory evidence. That would be correct. So, yeah, that's that's kind of important. Now, Anthony Hinton had no history of violent crime at this time, at the time of his arrest, and he steadfastly maintained his innocence. Prior to trial, he passed a polygraph test given by police that exonerated him of any involvement in these crimes. The polygrapher had said that he saw no signs of deception and that he essentially passed this polygraph with flying colors. But remember, polygraphs are generally inadmissible in court, and the trial judge refused to admit it into evidence at any point in the trial. Most importantly, Mr. Hinton had a powerful alibi for the night that Smotherman was robbed. He was working in a secure facility, a place called Bruno's Warehouse, 15 miles from the crime scene at the time of the Smotherman shooting. His supervisor and other employees confirmed that Mr. Hinton arrived at work at 11.57 p.m. on the night of the Smotherman crimes. He clocked in at midnight and was given his work assignment at about 12.10 a.m. He was checked on by his supervisor around 12.40 a.m., and was closely supervised during his six-hour shift. And what time did the Smotherman crime take place? Well, that would be the the, the million-dollar question right here, and it took place between 12.15 and 12.45. And the person who committed that crime had to be waiting outside of the restaurant from before midnight in order to follow the manager from the building at closing and attempt the robbery. If that isn't enough, after Mr. Hinton was arrested, similar armed robberies of fast food restaurants continued in the Birmingham area. Despite these facts, Mr. Hinton was charged in two separate indictments with the Davidson and Vassen robbery murders based on a theory that the person who committed the Smotherman crime had to have committed the two murders. Over defense counsel's objection, the two murder cases were consolidated into one case. As the state conceded at trial, the only evidence linking Mr. Hinton to the deaths of John Davidson and Thomas Wayne Vassen was a supposed tool mark link between the Hinton weapon, remember his mom's gun, and the bullets found from the three crime scenes. The prosecutor told the trial court, quote, if the evidence of the firearms experts of the state of Alabama is not sufficient, then, of course, a judgment of acquittal would lie. So the whole case against Anthony Hinton turned on the firearm and tool mark evidence. His defense attorney, frankly anybody, should know that it was absolutely critical to obtain a solid firearm and tool mark expert to review the evidence and to testify in Anthony's defense. The trial court authorized Hinton's attorney to spend $1,000 to retain a ballistics expert. His attorney could not find a qualified expert for, for only $1,000. So what did he do? Did he ask for more money? Nope. The lawyer hired someone who would do the job for only $1,000, even though he wasn't qualified. He found a guy named Andrew Payne a retired civil engineer whose experience was confined to working with heavy artillery in World War II. He testified that the results of the examination were inconclusive, which was unhelpful, but nowhere near as damaging as the prosecution's cross-examination, which revealed that Payne had no training or experience in firearms identification, did not know how to use a microscope to examine bullets, didn't test fire the gun, and then it ended with this exchange. Bob, will you be the expert and, and I'll be the prosecutor? Okay, sure. Yeah. All right. So I'm, I'm going to play the prosecutor. Mr. Payne, do you have some problem with your vision? Why, yes. How many eyes do you have? Uh, one. Yeah, that's literally from the transcript. 
So the expert that got hired was had one eye and didn't know how to use a microscope to examine bullets. So we got a one-eyed non-forensic expert who, this is 1985, and his experience was in World War II, which I believe was about 40 years prior. Yep. Oh, this is, this is great. Right. As you can imagine, the cross-examination was brutal. Mr. Hinton has said that he knew when his expert was being cross-examined that he was in trouble. Not because he'd done anything wrong, but because his expert was so bad. Hinton testified in his own defense and said he was working at the warehouse where employees were locked inside from midnight until 6 a.m. on the night of the robbery and the shooting of Smotherman at Quincy's. He denied involvement in all three crimes. He said that he was driving a small red Nissan at the time of the Quincy's robbery and owned a small yellow Volkswagen, neither of which fit Smotherman's description of a larger automobile that he said his attacker was driving. Now, if you aren't frustrated enough yet, let me throw out a few other issues. One of the investigators in Mr. Hinton's case, Lieutenant Doug Acker, was indicted on criminal charges and tried in federal court in 1982 after federal authorities concluded that he was beating and torturing criminal suspects to obtain confessions with the use of electric cattle prods and hypodermic needles. Holy shit! Mr. Acker, the head of a notorious Bessemer Vice Squad, was accused by another officer and federal prosecutors of routinely beating and torturing black prisoners and suspects by firing blank pistols into their heads, applying electric cattle prods to their genitals, and injecting them with hypodermic needles in an effort to coerce them into making statements or confessing to crimes. I think that breaks like 18 constitutional rights. I, I think it might hit all of them, honestly. Uh, the FBI recovered discarded cattle prods that had been thrown into a creek that Mr. Acker, uh, after he was indicted. And then after a mistrial, an all-white jury refused to convict Acker. Bob, can you guess what happened next? Well, he should have at a minimum been fired and never been allowed to investigate anything in his life, but I doubt that's what happened. Yeah, that's, that's not what happened. Instead, he was promoted by the police department and assigned to work on Anthony Ray Hinton's case. The original prosecuting attorney similarly exhibited racially biased behavior that can't be defended, excused, or supported. He was twice found guilty of illegally discriminating against African Americans in jury selection in Mobile and Jefferson County. He was the only prosecutor ever found to have, quote, a systemic and intentional practice of excluding blacks, end quote, from jury service so pronounced that it violated a civil rights era ban on racial discrimination. Unbelievable. And to be clear here, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals reached the unprecedented conclusion that his actions violated a 1965 Supreme Court holding that to prove illegal racial discrimination in jury selection, a criminal defendant must show that a prosecutor has made a studied effort to exclude black jurors in every case over a long period of time. So that's what was demonstrated. That's an incredibly high standard. You're right. It's such a high standard that it's been it's since been replaced because it was deemed to be impossible to meet, yet they managed to meet it with this particular prosecutor. Wow. Now the prosecutor has defended his work on Mr. Hinton's case despite the absence of evidence by asserting repeatedly that he could tell Mr. Hinton was not only guilty but also quote evil based solely on looking at him. He later explained that he knew Mr. Hinton was guilty because he, quote, just radiated guilt and pure evil, end quote. With, That's ridiculous. Yeah. With an ineffective defense lawyer, a one-eyed witness, a prosecutor who systematically excluded black jurors, and an investigator who had been indicted by the feds for abusing and coercing confessions from black citizens, 
only to receive a promotion, Anthony Hinton's fate had been sealed once they focused on him. On September 17, 1986, the jury deliberated for an hour before convicting Hinton of both murders. In December of 1986, just a couple months later, the jury voted 10 to 2 to sentence Hinton to death. You got that, like, I have a question face. It's not a question. I'm just horrified that the investigator, the prosecutor, both bags of shit that are putting this guy not in jail for life, but executing him. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and Alabama was one of only three states that permitted imposition of a death sentence without a unanimous verdict. So he was convicted uh, on a unanimous verdict, uh, but then there were two jurors who voted not to sentence him to death, but under Alabama law at that time, that was okay. It was all right. His convictions and death sentence were upheld by the Alabama Court of Appeals and the Alabama Supreme Court. Now, the post-conviction proceedings began in 1994, and three leading firearms experts examined the firearms evidence from Mr. Hinton's case, and each expert concluded that there is no evidence to establish that the bullets recovered from the three crimes were fired from the same weapon. In 1998, Equal Justice Initiative, a nonprofit organization in Alabama that provides legal assistance to indigent defendants and prisoners, began representing Hinton. I want to take a, just a quick pause right here to say a word about what exactly Equal Justice Initiative is. Brian Stevenson graduated from Harvard Law and then moved to Atlanta to work for the Southern Center for Human Rights in the 80s. And in 1989, he was put in charge of the Alabama operation providing various resources and death penalty defense to indigent clients. When the funding was eliminated, Stevenson then founded the nonprofit Equal Justice Initiative to continue the work. Stevenson was awarded a MacArthur grant in 1995 and put all of the money into EJI. He guaranteed a defense of anybody in Alabama sentenced to the death penalty, as Alabama is the only state that did not provide legal assistance to people on death row and has the highest per capita rate of death penalty sentencing. Oh, that's handy. Once you're on death row and we've decided we're going to execute you, no matter how flawed your due process and trial was, that's it. No more from you. You're just going to die unless you got the money to get out of it. You're, I mean, you didn't even know where I wanted to go with this, but, I, and I, I didn't, but that's, per, it ties in perfectly to something that Brian Stevenson says and says often, which is he is of the opinion that in America, it is much better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. You're damn right. Now, you might recognize Mr. Stevenson's name from the book or film by the same title, Just Mercy. The movie stars Michael B. Jordan, not the basketball player, the other guy. Oh, the ladies know who Michael B. Jordan is. That's right. You're right. Uh, the movie details one of EJI's first cases representing Walter McMillan. Although the movie is uh, centered around McMillan's story and Stevenson and, and representing him and trying to appeal his conviction, there's a character that plays Mr. Hinton and has some brief appearances in the film. Now, back to Anthony's case. In 2002, EJI commissioned a re-examination of the six crime scene bullets and Bueller Hinton's gun by these three leading experts. One was a forensic consultant named John Dillon who had worked on ballistics identification at the FBI's forensics laboratory and from 1988 until he retired in 94 had been a chief in the identification unit at FBI headquarters in Quantico. The other two experts had worked for many years as firearms examiners in the Dallas County Crime Laboratory and had each testified as experts in several hundred cases. At a post-conviction hearing in 2002, the firearm experts, whose qualifications the state conceded because these are people at the top of their field, they, they really couldn't be contested, 
the experts testified that none of the recovered bullets, with the exception of the Davidson bullets, could be linked to a single weapon. They also compared the six recovered bullets to the Hinton weapon, Bueller's 38, and they concluded that the bullets recovered from the crimes could not be matched to her revolver. So none of those six could have come from that gun that Anthony supposedly you know, might have had access to because it was his mom's. Right. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't link the, the only out of the six, the only two that they could say even came from the same gun was the Davidson. The shooting. two Davidson. Okay. Yep. Yep. So one of the experts, Emmanuel, reported these findings to the state's expert, Lawden Yates. Do you remember that guy? Yes. Okay. So Emmanuel asked Yates to work with him to resolve their differences as required by professional ethical rules under AFTE, the Association of Firearm and Toolmark Examiners, to which they both belonged to this organization. He asked Yates to show him what he had seen and what he had used to make his determination that there was a match so that they could kind of work it out and figure this out like, I don't know, scientists do. What do you think Yates did? The sumbitch refused. That's exactly right. He said, pound sand ain't doing it. The prosecution's response to Hinton's experts was to ignore the findings and argue that these experts essentially said the same thing that Hinton's ballistic examiner said at trial, that the results were inconclusive. So these three guys, the FBI, the Dallas County, these experts who've testified in several hundred cases and are leading experts in the field, um, the, the, the state's position was their results, their findings after all their testing uh, is exactly the same as the, uh, the one-eyed civil engineer with the World War II experience. Unbelievable. But these renowned firearms experts were not only capable of operating a microscope, but they also performed extensive testing and examinations on all the evidence. They determined that the Smotherman bullets were fired from a weapon that was severely out of time. So they tried to manually manipulate Bueller's 38 in, in a way that might allow it to produce a bullet like the Smotherman bullet by putting it in an extreme out-of-time position. So let's be clear here. Yeah, we don't need to get into the, the mechanics of guns, but just understand that essentially what they saw was this bullet uh, showed signs that the gun was functioning in a kind of way that was unusual. And they tried to manipulate. They, sa they said, can we take... Uh, Bueller's 38 and manipulated in a way to make it fire in this unusual way to see if it could even possibly produce this if we go out of our way to make it try to produce a bullet like this, right? Right. Um, they concluded that the Smotherman bullets could not have been fired from the Hinton weapon. Cooper testified, that's one of the other experts, testified that the Hinton weapon was unable to fire these bullets because of the mechanical ability of the weapon to produce a bullet of that nature. Essentially, it was impossible. Even manipulating the gun like they did, it, it just wouldn't do it. These findings alone should have exonerated Mr. Hinton. Without a weapon match, there's no basis to believe that Anthony Hinton is guilty of these offenses. Remember, at Hinton's original trial, the prosecutor told the trial court, quote, if the evidence of the firearms experts of the state of Alabama is not sufficient, then of course, a judgment of acquittal would lie. The supposed firearm match was the only evidence linking Mr. Hinton to the Davidson and Vassin crimes. The prosecutor acknowledged that the gun is key to the identification of the defendant, there being no eyewitnesses in either case involving the killing of John Davidson at Miss Winters or in the case involving Wayne Vassin at Captain D's. He reiterated that the only thing tying Anthony Ray Hinton to the capital crimes, quote, is the fact that the gun was used in all three instances, end quote. The state emphasized the same point to the jury, arguing in opening statements 
that without a tool marks match, there would be no conviction, indeed no prosecution. The trial judge likewise recognized that a judgment of acquittal would be appropriate if the tool marks evidence didn't match. Every court in the state, the trial court, the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals, and the Alabama Supreme Court all considered the factual assertion of a weapons match to be the requisite linchpin of the state's case. Although the Equal Justice Initiative repeatedly asked state officials to re-examine the evidence in Mr. Hinton's case over the course of 15 years to reopen the case or otherwise investigate the possibility that Mr. Hinton was innocent, they declined. Around the same time in 2002, EJI asked the Jefferson County District Attorney's Office to join a motion asking for reconsideration of the case and Mr. Hinton's release based on the new gun evidence, but the district attorney refused. So much for justice. So much for finding the truth. The attorney general's office also refused to re-examine the case despite repeated requests that began in 2002. Around that same time, the Birmingham News criticized the state's unwillingness to confront Hinton's evidence of innocence in a series of editorials. Now, this is a quote from that newspaper. Also unsettling is Attorney General Bill Pryor's reluctance to consider the possibility that a mistake was made. While Hinton's current lawyers are asking that his conviction be reconsidered, Pryor's office calls it a, quote, waste of time. That's unfortunate. Pryor's staff is entrusted with death penalty cases throughout the appeals process, but the prosecutors have no greater duty than ensuring that the wrong person does not die for a crime. Four years later, the editorial board wrote, If Anthony Ray Hinton's death sentence doesn't concern the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals, it's hard to imagine what death sentence would. In addition to the firearms evidence, there was more unrebutted evidence about Mr. Hinton's alibi presented at this 2002 hearing. One witness testified that he was pressured by police investigators to falsely identify Mr. Hinton as being near the crime scene, which fortunately he had refused to do. Despite all of the evidence favoring Mr. Hinton's innocence, state officials refused to take action. EJI had repeatedly asked state officials to reinvestigate the case and to reexamine the evidence, but they kept refusing. Reviewing the evidence of innocence, misconduct, and unfairness, former Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, Sue Bell Cobb, cited this case as a clear example of unconstitutional misconduct and opined Mr. Hinton was entitled to relief. She wrote in an opinion, in a dissent in a case, Anthony Ray Hinton did not receive a fair trial. His capital murder convictions and death sentence were obtained after the state had suppressed favorable material evidence and after trial counsel had rendered ineffective assistance by failing to seek additional funds for an expert and by presenting an unqualified witness to testify as an expert. In all my tenure on the bench, I have never seen the state successfully prosecute a capital murder case when the only evidence of guilt consisted of testimony by a firearms and tool mark expert. Who wasn't even a damn expert, and was there never a Daubert hearing on this guy? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, I'd have to go back and look, but... I'm sure the state would, was perfectly happy with him. Right, yeah, I mean, they're not going to Because they knew they could just cream him yeah. on the stand. Yeah. Um, now, Justice Greg Shaw, then Judge Greg Shaw, in that same case, also wrote... Bob, you want to read this one for us? This is an extremely important case, not only for Hinton and the families of the victims of these horrendous crimes, but also for the people of Alabama, who must have confidence that the criminal justice system is capable of achieving its ultimate purpose, the fair conviction and punishment of the guilty and the protection of the innocent. Anthony Hinton wouldn't find relief from any court, any official, any corner of the justice system until 2014. 
In February 2014, the United States Supreme Court vacated Hinton's conviction and death sentence and ordered a new trial. The court ruled that Hinton's trial lawyer had provided a constitutionally inadequate legal defense by failing to seek more money to obtain a qualified ballistics expert. The court also held that the trial judge mistakenly said the defense was limited to $1,000 for an expert. The relevant statute used to include a $1,000 cap, but it had been amended prior to Hinton's trial. The revised statute allowed for any expenses reasonably incurred so long as the expenses were approved in advance by the trial judge. The Supreme Court's decision in Mr. Hinton's case was unanimous. That's something. The court wrote, Hinton's attorney knew that he needed more funding to present an effective defense, yet he failed to even make a cursory investigation of the state statute providing for defense funding for indigent defendants that would have revealed to him that he could receive reimbursement not just for $1,000, but for any expenses reasonably incurred. I think it's also important uh, or, or worth noting something that the court said toward the end of its opinion. They said, Indeed, we have recognized the threat to fair criminal trials posed by the potential for incompetent or fraudulent prosecution forensics experts, noting that serious deficiencies have been found in forensic evidence used in criminal trials. One study of cases in which exonerating evidence resulted in the overturning of criminal convictions concluded that invalid forensic testimony contributed to the convictions in 60% of those cases. After Mr. Hinton's conviction was vacated and the case was sent back to Alabama, the prosecution had new experts re-examine the bullets and gun in preparation for a retrial. Yeah, in case you're wondering, the state didn't just say, oh, okay, well, we're done. They said, no, we're going to hire some experts and, and we're going to go after you. And then there was this limbo period where Hinton really had no idea what was going on. They were kind of waiting, awaiting trial, and it was unclear what, what position the would, state was going to take. Was he still in custody? Oh, yeah. This was all Oh, yeah. On? Yeah, okay. yeah. Because they, they vacated his conviction, but then they set it for a new trial. So the new trial date was set. Now, the prosecution's expert experts also concluded that they could not link the bullets from the three victims to Bueller's 38. So to be clear, the state's own experts now at this retrial phase have determined that they couldn't definitively link any of the bullets from any of the crime scenes to Anthony's mom's gun. So now we have six people saying that, yeah, this is not. There's, all well, kind of, there's, there's a lot of people. Yeah, there's three saying completely not possible. And there's three saying uh, we can't say one way or the other. Well, and remember the original experts, I'm putting that in air quotes. You can't see me, but I'm air quoting away. Um Initially, you know, they changed their initial findings at the, remember Higgins initially said, well, I can't even say these two bullets came from the same gun. And then when Yates comes in and says, well, this second crime scene, these are from the same gun. Hey, let's re-examine from yours. And then all of a sudden Higgins changed his report. Right now everything matches. But at, but at this point with, with Higgins and Yates not being the experts that they're following, the three states right. experts are at least saying, yeah, we, we can't say these are all related. And the three defense experts are saying, well, we can tell you they are positively not, did not come from this gun. And only two of them were fired by the same gun. Mm -hmm. At this point in time, Anthony Ray Hinton was the second longest serving death sentence person in Alabama. Then on April 2nd, 2015, a judge granted the Jefferson County District Attorney's motion to dismiss the charges. Hinton was released. 1,489 weeks or... 10,424 days or 15,010,560 minutes. That's how much time passed between Anthony Ray Hinton's conviction 
and release. Now, Anthony's mother, Bueller, passed in 2002 while he was still in custody and, and really just beginning to fight this uphill battle. And despite that, and despite losing his closest family members while waiting for justice, if you can call it that, Mr. Hinton somehow found a way to, to not just survive, but to persevere, and it's odd to say it, but frankly, thrive, and to make the most out of an absolutely horrible situation. In 28 years on death row, Mr. Hinton collected only a single disciplinary infraction. He was alleged to have used someone's cell phone to call a relative. Such a bad guy. Right? At the beginning of this episode, I posed a hypothetical about living the hell Anthony Hinton experienced for almost 30 years. Thinking about what it would be like and how hard it must be, I asked what words might spill out of your mouth when you finally stepped outside. That wasn't a random question. When Anthony was released and reunited with his loved ones, in that moment, the words that spilled out of his mouth were, the sun does shine. Amongst the joyful cries of his loved ones, the tears for what could have been, the mixed emotions of the kind of emotionally perplexing day that we can't begin to understand unless we've lived it, the sun does shine. A few weeks after Anthony Hinton was released, Brian Stevenson attended the Innocence Network Conference to accept the network's Champion of Justice Award. When he accepted the award, he spoke as brilliantly as he always does, encouraging the professionals who work on these hard cases and the individuals in the room who had spent years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. But he told the audience that the award was not his. It was for somebody else. This award belonged to a man who had spent over half of his life on death row a man who had just been released a few weeks prior. Anthony Ray Hinton joined him on stage and found himself before an audience entirely on its feet, raucously cheering for him and without a dry eye in the room. He was and is an inspiring human being. He has written a book about what he's been through and you won't be surprised by the title, The Sun Does Shine. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. You leave. I, I think Bob's getting up to leave. I'm a fan. It shocks the fuck. He gone.